Right, so let's, let's now go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have gathered this day um, down by the river that we might pray to you. Uh, you who take the waters of baptism and wash us clean. You who take the waters of baptism and open, us, open to us a future uh, and a hope that is full of freedom and life and possibility, um, life together with you. And we thank you that as you, um, just as you drew the people um, out of slavery in Egypt by, pat, by leading them through the water, so too do you draw us. And just as you led them up the mountain to Sinai to receive the word on tablets of stone, so too do you draw us uh, through the waters of baptism and open to us your word. And so we ask that you would send your spirit upon us to do that now, that we might be illumined, that we might, uh, by your light, see light. Um, and that your light would transfer, transform any darkness in us, that we might be yours for your ends and purpose and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, so a few weeks ago, we started this new sermon series on the book of Exodus, right? And to this point, we have, we've noticed the dramatic character of the book. So this is going to be a little review here, okay? So we noticed the dramatic character of it. Um, it is a, an adventure story with a cruel villain in Pharaoh, with an unexpected hero in Moses, uh, with divine confrontation, skin of your teeth, deliverance through the sea, trips up the mountain, treks through the wilderness, right? And... I pointed out the dramatic character of this book so that you might also recognize, and this was the more important point, I think, that everything happening in Exodus is also happening in you. Everything happening there is also happening in your heart, in your life, in your soul, uh, and among us as a people. Because your life is an Exodus journey. Um, it is a being set free by Jesus. It is a passing through the waters of baptism. It is learning God's will for your life and the commandments which are given from atop the mountain. Um, it is a trekking through the wilderness of this world on your way home to a land of promise. And so if that's true, that this book of Exodus is incredible, uh, that everything happening there is happening in us, it would also make sense that if Moses, who is the key figure, the leader, the one who leads the people out of slavery and into freedom, um, that everything happening in his life actually gives us a pattern, gives us a way forward, gives us... Um, a sense of possibility of what might be happening in you. And if we look at Moses, the vision that is set before us is, is absolutely glorious. It's stunning. It's staggering. Um, in it, we see a slave become the leader of a liberated nation. Um, we see a baby who's placed in a river in order that he might be drowned and sink to the depths rise to the highest of heights and meet Almighty God atop the pinnacle of the world, atop God's holy mountain. We see a person completely trapped, he along with all the people, with no place to go as they stand with the Red Sea in front and the chariots from, sent by Pharaoh behind, with nowhere to, grow, to go, and we see them um, opening up his arms, spreading his arms wide, as God constitutes nothing less than a new creation, the language here is straight from Genesis, as the waters are parted from the waters and dry ground appears and they walk across. Um, this vision staggering, and it is what God intends, not just for Moses, not just for the people of Israel, but also for you and for me and for us together. Um, 
God wants those close to death to be brought to life. God wants those who are enslaved to be set free and to set other people free. And God wants those who are trapped to be liberated by his recreating hand. God wills that for you. But here's some of the problem. Has anyone in here read the book of Exodus before or at least familiar with the story? Um, or at least watch Charlton Heston on TV. <laughs> Come on, right? So if you've watched any of that, if you've read any of that, if you've experienced any of the story, does anyone here know that Christ comes as a greater Moses and leads us into ultimate freedom and leads us not just atop the mountain of Sinai, but into Mount Zion, the Holy of Holies? God, Christ takes us. Anybody know that? See, because, see, I know the end of the story, and so I'm tempted to just sort of skip to the end. Like, well, I know how it turns out. And to imagine that I can simply skip the hard part, the hard journey, the hard work um, of moving through the wilderness, wondering where the next meal will come from, waiting upon God who remains faithful and continues to be faithful to provide water from the rock or bitter water made sweet in the pool of Mara or manna to fall from heaven or quails to populate the ground in the evening. I'm tempted to just skip to all the good parts and not deal with the difficult parts. The, the parts that require something of me. So we're, we're spending kind of two weeks here setting it up at the beginning. And those two weeks actually constitute most of our lives, generally speaking. Most of us will pretty much stay in those first two weeks for most of our lives that, are, that we're covering um, here in worship. And so I don't want you to think just because we covered one thing last week and then uh, this content this week that we've actually caught up. We're reading ahead here. And so what I want you to see is that you can't begin at the end. You have to begin at the beginning. And that's why we turned to Gregory of Nyssa last week. Fourth century guy, one of the Cappadocian fathers. Maybe we can remember him on Father's Day. Uh, in, in one sense, he's a father to us. Um, and he begins to work through an adult-level understanding of the book of Exodus, specifically by focusing on Moses. Right? So many of us learn the Exodus story by going to Sunday school. And I don't know if they built a Mount Sinai like Charlene and Roger did in, in your Sunday school classroom, but you probably learn the story of the Ten Commandments, which were given, and the golden calf, which was built. And you remember the gist of it, and maybe when I'm doing some of these kind of riffs on the whole thing, you're like, yeah, I remember parts of that. And maybe you went back as an adult and you read Exodus and you realized that the ten, there's something really deep about the Ten Commandments. They encapsulate a whole lot and you were able to go a little further. But I think, I think for a lot of us, we just kind of stuck with Sunday school. And our understanding of the book of Exodus or maybe even the Old Testament generally is like, I don't know, what Lily's getting at age six, right? And so what Gregory of Nyssa does is he says, okay, Here's, here's a mature level of understanding for some mature folks. Here's a way to go deeper with what's actually happening here so you can see how it connects to your actual life. And this is what he begins to open us to. He says, Moses is, in this kind of spiritual reading, a picture of virtue. It's like the beginning of holiness starting in you. It's the, it's the opening uh, pages of the story of your life, of God's holiness coming into your own to change you and transform you. 
And as we see holiness getting its start in Moses, a couple things come up. We see Moses born. That was last week, the infancy story. Moses is born. He says, Moses' parents are like your free will. Because in order to see God's holiness and the life of Christ born in you, you actually have to choose to go along with it. You have to choose to follow that path. You could just be like, well, I'll, I'll just read the story and keep it at arm's length. Or you could choose to say, no, I want to walk this journey too with all the people. So free will has a part. Free will is like your parents, says Gregory of Nyssa. But they're also midwives. What do midwives do? They help the baby be born. Yes? And in the story, Shipra and Pua, kind of funny names, they help protect the babies, the male children born in Egypt. So what, who's the midwife in this story? What do the midwives do? And Gregory of Nyssa said, the midwives are like your reason. If you have to choose to walk the path, then you actually have to think about it. Okay, well, how concretely is this going to take shape in my life? How is God's goodness and holiness going to enter into me? How can I cooperate here with what God's doing? And of course, as we seek those things, the basket's floating down the river. And the waves of the Nile, choppy, that seek to capsize Moses and to drag him down into death, these are the passions, said Gregory of Nyssa. Greed, or gluttony, or anger, any, any manner of these vices that we mentioned last week. So there's things that want and seek your death. They don't want you to grow in holiness. They want you to just not even care about it, right? Or think it's even important. But in order to make it into the reeds, to the side of the shore, to escape the waves that seek to put you to death, and to make their way, to make your way to the shore, um, you need to be working on the sides of the ark, right? So the basket he imagines as an, as an ark. And the virtues are what enable you to make your way safely to shore. Faith, hope, love, those things that we mentioned last week. And then once you get there, what happens? It says we are to nourish ourselves, just like Moses, who was drawn out by... Who took Moses out of the water? Pharaoh's... Yeah daughter and then what did she do she's like oh this baby's gonna need to eat and so she got Moses own mother and said why don't you feed her and I'll pay you it was a decent bargain wasn't it and so she takes the mo Moses mother takes Moses and feeds him and nourishes him and Gregory Nyssa says in the same way if you want to grow if you want to mature if you want to develop if you want to see Christ's life grow in your own how do you do that by being nourished by the milk of your true mother, the church. And he imagines that nourishment happening in word and in sacrament. <clears throat> as we feed at the table, as we feed upon the word and are nourished by the Holy Spirit. So I know that's a lot. I know that I wrote it down because it was a lot. I know it's a lot. Um, if you don't get it, we're going to be with Exodus for a while, so stick with it. And all that brings us to the step we're taking today, found in Exodus 2, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. In this passage, we discover the end of the beginning. The end of the beginning. This is the beginning of the story. Two things happen in the beginning of the story. The infancy narrative, which we've just described, and then Moses has a midlife crisis. That constitutes the beginning 
of this journey and this story. Now, the final stages of the beginning in our initial preparation is what happens before God draws Moses close by the warmth of a bush that burns without being consumed. Do you remember that story? That's next week. But this is the end of the beginning. So listen carefully, listen well to Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a priest and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew the water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zephora. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So two things stand out in our passage today. There's a ton there. We're not even going to go to the well image. But two big things I want to focus on this morning. Moses killing the Egyptian. That one's hard to miss, isn't it? And then his flight to Midian, which results in a marriage, a child, and a vocation. So focus on two things, Moses killing the Egyptian, and then his flight to Midian where he's given a marriage, a child, and a vocation. So let's take those one at a time. Uh, first and most difficult, I think, is to, in your mind's eye, to visualize, to picture Moses walking along, now a grown man. Did you get that? He was all grown up. Probably around 40 is what the estimation is here. Um, so, hence midlife crisis. He's walking around, now a grown man, clad in the traditional garb of a member of Egypt's royal family. And he's looking out upon the effects of that royal family's power on his own people. That's where the passage begins. Moses went out to look upon his people, his Hebrew people, and he saw their burdens. He sees, of course, men and women stooped beneath the weight of bricks, scorched by the heat of a, uh, of a burning sun, burdened by the grief of children who were immediately relegated to drowning. 
This is what he saw. And if to this point in the whole entirety of the scriptures, so Genesis and now into Exodus, if Babylon of the Tower of Babel was the worst picture of evil in the world to that point, the Egyptians have topped it. Um, Egypt has managed brutality, infanticide, slavery, and oppression rule the day. These are the watchwords of this kingdom. This is what Moses saw when he went out and looked upon his people. But can you, I don't want you to just see what he saw. Can you begin just for a minute to try to wrestle with what he felt? Can you imagine what he must have felt? Torn between two worlds. Wearing the skin of an Israelite and the clothes of an Egyptian prince. That would have been awkward. Everything in his life must in some way have felt inside out, upside down. He had no place to really belong, did he? But his heart, as we can see, was with the Hebrews. And so when he saw the Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew countrymen, he struck down the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. Let's be more explicit. Moses killed the Egyptian and buried him. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that our hero kills someone in the opening pages of this deliverance story? Certainly we can't make excuses for murder or um, just advocate that he somehow did the right thing. Why? Well, obviously, in just a few pages or a few more steps that Moses takes, thou shalt not kill ended up being like one of the, I mean, God's top ten. I mean, really, Moses. Usually we hear the Ten Commandments and we're like, well, those apply to me and everything. Can you imagine Moses getting that? And how he must have felt convicted? Right? Thou shalt not kill is one of the Ten Commandments that Moses shall get. We, we're, we're not saying he did the right thing. We're saying he did the wrong thing here. He committed an evil act. So what do we do with the fact that God will call forth a man who has committed such an egregious sin even in the face of unrighteousness he was being beaten we can if we begin to feel what Moses felt we can maybe feel sympathy for him in some way which sort of points to the own problems in our own heart too right what do we do with that two things come to mind first it might be good to ask is there anyone here today who thinks that God might not want to use them for the advancement of God's kingdom because they have done something wrong. Because they're so aware of their own sin in their own life. Because they know they've been bad. They've acted in concert with evil ends or maybe even intentions. Is there anyone here who's so burdened uh, by their own sin, so torn apart by the, by the two lives that they're leading, one good and then the other kind of beset by sin that they cannot envision being a part of God's kingdom in a full way. Maybe they can scratch their way in somehow, but not participate in all the fullness of that. Is there anyone here whose inner life and outward actions don't match up? Sort of like Moses' skin and his outward dress. Is there anyone that has committed acts so shameful to you that all you can bear to do is cover them up in the sand to hide them away under the earth and hope that no one ever digs them up? 
Anyone here like that? If so, then guess what? God's not done with you yet. God isn't done with you yet. God desires to use you. Yes, even you. God wants to include you. Yes, even you. If God can take Moses, after, even after he kills another human being, and mold him to become the greatest leader in the entirety of the Old Testament, that God can and will use you. Before Christ came, who was the greatest leader in the history of God's people? It's Moses. That's who, we, that's who it is. If God can use Moses even after that, God can use you as well. And I pray that that gives you hope. That's the first thing. But there's also another, there's a spiritual reading, a spiritual interpretation of this passage, sort of an allegorical one, if you will. So can I pay attention? I want you to get this. This Egyptian taskmaster beating the Hebrew slave. Can you see him whipping his hand? can certainly be understood as symbolic of the demons who would oppress you. Who bind you um, and enslave you to pride or anger or fear or greed or gluttony or jealousy or envy or selfishness or sloth or despair. If the slave master is a servant to Pharaoh visualized as an evil earthly ruler in the world, something akin to a devil who murders and oppresses and enslaves and destroys, then Pharaoh's servant, the slave master, pictures for us something like a demon who is intent on what? Wearing you down in submission, beating you or whipping you into a state of servitude and hopelessness by whipping up your passions. And if that is a spiritual reading, then what other choice do you have than to put that demon to death? To bury him beneath the earth? To send him back to Sheol so that you might have freedom from those tyrannical passions? That is exactly how you become more useful to God. More open to His purposes. More free to lead others into freedom too. To put to death the passions in your life is the main work which constitutes the beginning of your Exodus journey. I'm going to say that again because that's sort of like a main point. To put to death the passions in your own life is the main work of the beginning of your Exodus journey. Do you now know why I said that most of us spend our entire lives in the beginning? I know you well enough to know and you know me well enough to know that you have not yet overcome your passions. So we're still here. That's where we are to wrestle with that. We sang a song this morning at 9 o'clock which described the battle that is going on with echoes of Exodus there. And that song reminded us that when we go to war, it is God who fights for us. And that our primary weapon is a melody. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Our primary form of fighting this battle with the passions in ourselves is worship. Because when you worship, it's kind of hard to be sitting there counting your money and really be worshiping, isn't it? Like, it's hard to be greedy while you're paying attention to God on high. 
Or it's, it's kind of hard, you know, gluttony doesn't just apply to food. It applies to just take, trying to take in too much of the world and use that to satisfy yourself. It's hard to do that when you're not even attending to the world, but when you're attending to God on high. See, in worship, we experience victory from those things. That's why what you're doing now is so important. And when you do begin to experience that freedom, it kind of looks like the second part of our passage. Moses' flight to Midian. All right, so we're picking up there. To flee from the passions, like he does, results in stillness. Um, it results in a peaceful way of life because you're not tossed about by the waves anymore. You've come to the side of the shore. You've come to a place of stillness and peace. And that is represented and made explicit by the circumstances that Moses finds in Midian as he marries Zephorah, the daughter of a priest, and enjoys the blessing of a son, Gershom. Gershom means something like sojourner. And sojourner means something like wanderer. Moses says that he named Gershom wanderer because he had himself been a wanderer in a foreign land. But now it looks an awful lot like Moses has finally found a home, doesn't it? The Moses who was pulled apart and didn't know where he belonged has now found a place of belonging. This kind of sounds a little bit like a fairy tale, doesn't it? I mean, sort of. It kind of sounds like a fairy tale. And it might provide in an ordinary fairy tale a decent end of the story, actually. Think about it. Moses, the protagonist, survives death by drowning. He becomes a man in the courts of the king. He confronts unrighteous oppressors and he escapes evil, the evil land of his youth, all of which results in marriage, family, a place to call home, and a flock to tend. A job. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs> you know what else it sounds like to me? It sounds like the American dream. The story we've been fed our whole lives about what the good life looks like. Freedom? Big part of the story. Family? Big part of the story. A place to call home? Hopefully. Honest work that puts food on the table? And once you acquire all that, then happily ever after, maybe. And maybe that's all you've kind of thought about for your life. And church fits in there. Being Christian certainly fits in there, but it's all intertwined. And maybe your sense of purpose in life, maybe your sense of satisfaction with your life is either large or small based on how close you are to approaching that ideal or achieving that vision in your own life. A freedom, maybe a family, a place to call home, and a job to put food on the table. But you know what? This isn't a fairy tale. And the kingdom of God is so much more than the American dream. And God's not done with Moses yet. This isn't the end of the story. It's just the end of the beginning. And God's not done with you either. Because Moses' freedom, his family, his unique identity, his sordid past, his miraculous escape, his freedom from passion... His flight from demonic oppression was all for a bigger purpose. It was all for a larger reason. All of the particular ways in which his life has been shaped in the beginning were all a part of God's plan for the middle and the end and the kingdom. 
And that is true for you as well. God is not done with you yet. Because you are a liberator. You're you're one who's meant to set people free. You are a freedom fighter. Um, You are a divine messenger. Have you ever thought of yourself in those terms? Maybe not. You are. I'm telling you, you are a divine messenger. You are one whose victory over the passions opens up the possibility of the same for a multitude of other people. You are called to lead people through the waters and up the mountain. You're called to receive manna from heaven and move towards kingdom promise. But you can't do that if you keep sitting home at Midian. Thinking that that's the end. And that's why next week, see that teaser? Way off in the distance, as you're moving through your Midian life, of which, thanks be to God, being present in church on Sunday morning is a part. Way off in the distance, God's going to catch your attention. Placing a bush that burns in front of you. And He will call you by that mystery to a life that you never could have imagined. A life that begins in the freedom of Jesus Christ and results in a new creation by water, let's see, by the word given atop the mountain. God's not done with you yet. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.